Please welcome Margaret Wappler. Hello. Okay. I just wanted to show you guys first that Seth Fisher brought this little alien head of, of liquor, which is a very important tool to have near me. A, a good omen, I think. So speaking of alien heads, um, yeah. why write a novel about flying saucers in the suburbs? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I basically just had this vision in my mind. Or I just saw this sort of like photo almost of a family, like a nuclear family, like four members, um, all standing and looking at this spaceship, this like flying saucer that had landed in their backyard. And I knew that they were all having really different reactions to it and that that was like a story to explore, um, particularly the dad being like just really put out, you know, just like, what is this thing here? And that really made me laugh. Like, why would he just be so over it already? Ernest is such a, like, human but goofy character. Like, did you grow up knowing that kind of, like, crusading environmentalist? Oh, yeah. I mean, (laughs) the very, very, very early template for Ernest is my brother, who is the guy that's, like, when you're starting to throw, like, a crumpled can in the wrong basket, he's like, no, 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 it goes in recycling. It goes right here. And I, that is, like, the first initial template, but, of course, Ernest is, is very, very different from him. But that kind Kind of, um, I, I find it really interesting the kind of person who, um, in a lot of ways, I agree with, and, and probably many people will agree with his ideas. Like, yes, it's good to recycle. It's good to, you know, think about the un- environment and conservation and that kind of thing. But he sort of takes it to this level that's like irritating, and I find that really interesting. That friction between like somebody who you think is doing the right thing, but they still piss you off. Well, it's such an interesting kind of masculinity because yeah. it's very like pushy, but in this I'm helping kind of way. Right. Yeah, it's like kind of the ultimate in mansplaining. (laughs) (laughs) But for the environment. You know, mansplaining the environment. Okay. You really, really love Margaret Atwood. Was that, and she of course is obsessed with like the environment and how that relates to like human culture now. Is that one of the reasons that you were interested in writing a novel about the environment? Or environmentalism. Yeah. Um, I mean, I definitely do love Margaret Atwood, and I love The Handmaid's Tale. And there's, there is something about the feeling of that book that's in Neon Green, I think. But it's, it, they're pretty far from each other in the sense that there's a lot more playfulness, I think, in my work than maybe Margaret Atwood um, typically works with. But uh, I don't know. Definitely the way that she humanizes science, like scientific issues, has always been of, of great interest to me. The fact that she could make something like environmentalism just like how does this play out in a family like how does this become kind of a problem in a family well you so frequently are like undercutting the tension with really really funny moments but you're also constantly stepping back to like humanize these characters and give us some touch like going into their hearts and minds and that experience 20 years ago that defines the tiny way that they're reacting right now and this is too complex of a question, but all of the stuff of yours I've read was surprisingly funny. Not something... I mean, <laughs> you are a funny person, but I, you're a journalist, and so I wasn't expecting it. Is everything you write... Does that sense of play show up in everything you write? I think so, yeah. I mean, I this is something I tell my students a lot, that if you're sitting down to write, one of the best things you can do is just make yourself laugh. 
You know, like if you don't know what else to do, like do that. Um, and that's just, to me, it's like a relationship with myself where I'm just trying to have a good time, like as I'm writing. And, and humor for me is just part of that. That's an interesting point, Margaret Wappler. You, you. Teach, you. you teach writing. Yes, I do. Is it hard to like throw down with this is my novel when you have a bunch of students whose work you've criticized just waiting to have an opinion about your work? <laughs> Students in the audience, we can have a critique session next session. Yeah, it'll happen. <laughs> um, you, we are roughly the same age. We will never say what that age is. But you are three weeks older than me. I just want to say it. Very true. Uh, for for somebody who's like Gen X, setting a story about like a nuclear family in the suburbs in 1994 yeah. is hardly surprising. But what is it about the larger world in 1994 that made you want to set this story then? Well, I really wanted to do a couple of things with that setting. One was just to have a time and a place that I knew I could render really warmly because it's my it's my past, it's my existence. You know, I grew up in the Chicago suburbs in the 90s. It's 100% my world. I mean, obviously, it's I didn't there wasn't spaceships around, um, but other than that, it's like pretty dead on. And so because there was this kind of like really strange, um, you know, just huge albatross of a kind of gimmick in there. I wanted the other parts of the book to sort of push against it and feel really warm and familiar and for and, and hopefully to create a relationship there that made the spaceship even pop more. Like made it even more absurd because like everything else was completely normal. Um, it, it was one of the things, I had never thought about 1994 in that way, but it really is this threshold between a time past and something that starts, you know, before Bill Clinton starts building his bridge to the 21st century um, and it was it, it was just such an interest you found so much so much texture that I didn't even think about the the HIV positive infants um, or sort of like the the subtle references to Bosnia and Rwanda not that it is a heavy book but there was just this texture reminding you of it's a more complex time than just friends was in its first season <laughs> Yeah, I just wanted that kind of stuff to be like leaking in from the sides, you know, not for it to be super heavy handed with the nostalgia. Like in the beginning of writing the book, I really um, played with the gas, like on the pedal of the of the gas about like how far to go into nostalgia land because I didn't want it to be like, you know, like characters are just like, I don't know, eating Hot Pockets and then they watch Friends and then they listen to the Pixies. You know what I mean? I just didn't want it to be like that ridiculous about it. Also, I don't know how much I'm allowed to ask questions like this of an author, but like, why are they such down market flying saucers? Like, <laughs> why are they such? Because the flying saucers are, are pretty, like, yeah, they're you like emphasize a little bit. Yeah, why? Um, you know, I wanted it, I thought about airplanes. Like, I, I had this kind of realization when I was on an airplane, um, and I think I grew up thinking that airplanes were glamorous and sophisticated, and then the first time, and I didn't ever get on an airplane until I was about 13, and I got on it with my uncle, and I remember looking around just being like, oh, this is, like, ratty. Like, the carpet's all torn, and, like, there are these dings on the wings and stuff like that, and so I just thought about the fact that, you know, when there is a, a you know, an airplane, a spacecraft of any kind is making journeys it's just going to get battered yeah. and I wanted it to be like you know like spirit airlines level <laughs> of like <laughs> that's so cruel to your aliens Margaret <laughs> I know oh. they don't have it easy <laughs> okay so 
what, like, the Chicago suburbs, what are they to you? What, like, for those of us who lived only in this golden land of pleasure and ripe peaches, what should we know of the Chicago suburbs? <laughs> yeah, you lucky bastards. <laughs> They're avocados and lemon trees. And it's so funny because you're, like, the most California person I know. You, like, so? you breeze in on, like, a, a sunbeam and regret. And... <laughs> Wow, I'm like re-seeing myself. Um, You know, I don't know, the Chicago suburbs, I mean, it's almost so close to me. I mean, I think the fact that I do live here and I have lived here for a long time made me able to look at it from a distance, you know, and to see that there are lots of earnests around, you know, there are lots of sort of like well-meaning, like fuddy-duddy liberals, you know, like trying to get things done. Like these are basically the people who vote in like Obama in like the middle of Minnesota where people are like, oh, wait, who's that? What's that contingent? That's it. You know what I mean? Those are like the secret liberals that are just like sprinkled all over the Midwest who they have their hearts in the right place but they still do have this kind of conservatism that like streaks through their ideology. Like the deep pragmatism that comes with six months of snow. Yeah, exactly. Like you can't mess around, you need snow boots. Just... Like, I really loved, like, just the idea of, oh, the the spaceship will kill the grass possibly sooner than the winter does. Right. Right. This is Ernest's big worry when it first lands. It's like, what's going to happen to the grass? Okay. The central, like, kind of the central idea of this book is this notion of these multiple kinds of green. Like, the the neon green of the spaceship and then the greenness of this environmentalist. What, What does green mean to you? Well, I mean, I wanted to work with a color. I knew that because I really love, like, in the sort of classic literature, symbolism kind of context, I really love when people play with colors. And... um, Green just became a really obvious one right away because I, you know, like I said earlier, the kind of first image I got was a spaceship parked in the backyard. And I really got into thinking about like the neon green lights of the spaceship shining on this super green grass and sort of the difference between those greens, like one being this highly foreign, alien, literally alien light shining, and the other being like the most supposedly natural um, thing you can have. And I think the book, you know, throughout, like, you see green sort of go back and forth between being, like, the things that we traditionally associated with it, you know, nature and of the environment and vibrant and things like that, and then on the other side being sort of noxious and possibly a pollutant. But also, like, that in 1994, so viscerally, those were the two visions of the future. Like, there was this extremely, like, technical, possibly carcinogenic future that was going to provide us all with plenty uh, and Amazon bringing things to our doors in two days and then this very Al Gore vision of like a simpler future where we are nicer to our planet. Yeah, I do think in the 90s those ideas were fighting each other a lot. You know, and that's part of the reason I wanted to sit in that time frame. And because I wanted it to be like the internet's on the horizon, like certain really savvy people know about it, but most of the people don't. There is an amazing moment in this book where somebody brings up the internet and then the people around them, oh, I have heard of that. And what's wonderful is if you are over 30 years old, you had that moment. Mm -hmm. Like you had that moment and you will identify with it so hard. (laughs) Um, Margaret, we are here in beautiful Skylight Books. 
What book here do you think people should consider taking home as a companion to Neon Green? Oh, God. Oh, shit. I did not prep her with this question. I thought of it while we were here. I'm sorry to throw stuff at you, Margaret. Uh, 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 I'm just going to start, like, screaming out books that I see. Bad Feminist, Roxanne Gay. Um, when have you not... Calling the shots. When did I ask you a question and you didn't rise to the occasion, Margaret Wappler? <laughs> I mean... I will say that White Noise by Don DeLillo was a big kind of signal point to me in the, in the sky. Yeah, uh, it was delightfully evocative of White Noise in a really charming way. The, one of the really interesting differences was, like, one of the great moments in White Noise is a guy checks his ATM, and it is the right number, and he gets that feedback from the technical world that tells him, you are correct. And in this book, there is a really interesting moment where somebody gets feedback from the natural world world mm-hmm. that is just such a beautiful moment. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, there's a moment in the book, kind of early on, where there's it's the only flashback, really, in the book. And it's with Ernest, um, who is you know the, the father of the family, the one who doesn't want the spaceship there. And it's him flashing back and thinking of this time that he was hiking near this hot springs in the Sierras, and he gets into it, and he has this really kind of like religious moment of it just sort of opening up his soul and like really really standing in for religion that was one of my main ideas with that is that like what do you he's not a religious person he's not even really a spiritual person but like how do you get that if you're not that person and for him it is nature your dad was a minister was there how does that relate to having this sort of like crusading person who is devoted to sort of like a higher cause in in this book? Well, I do think that I thought a lot about the way that Ernest clings to environmentalism, which is like a religious belief for him. It is doctrine, you know, in the same way that I think my dad would just explain Jesus existing to me like there's just no other thing. Like that is is the way it is. And, you know, I, I don't, I'm not particularly religious now, but I find the mentality around religion really interesting and in, in a lot of ways very admirable to like really just believe uh, 100% in something you cannot see and quantify. And um, I wanted Ernest to have that. And, you know, some of it too, I mean, that's another experience that kind of came directly from my brother. One time we were hiking and we sort of started talking about, you know, being raised in this religious family and like, you know, how we both kind of felt alienated from that. But then he told me about this time that he went to these hot, hot springs and just felt completely transformed. And so I, I wanted that kind of experience in there. You are a younger sister uh, with older brothers. Did they harass you to the extent that Gabe harasses Allison in this book? <laughs> you know, no. Like, Gabe is so much nicer to Allison than my brothers were. Like, and in fact, like, Gabe and Allison, their sibling relationship is kind of my fantasy of a sibling relationship. Like, that was one of the fantasies I sort of acted out in the book. I mean, you know, they have problems and they mess with each other, but they love each other. Like, that's a solid core. What, what do suburbs do to people? Like what? <laughs> how how do suburbs impact the way that people relate to each other? Well, I mean, I think that it's this like microcosm, and 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 we all sort of buy into this idea that it's like safe and wholesome and and very constructed, and and we like that about it. Um, but the thing I thought I think about the suburbs and what I tried to tap into in the book is that I think the suburbs are actually like quite weird. You know, like they're way weirder to me than cities. Why? Um, because I. Think I think the conformity is so, like this idea that like, you know, there's the Barnes and Noble in the, no offense to Barnes and Noble, you can totally buy my book there, it's awesome. Um, (laughs) 
thought you should buy it here. <laughs> but anyway, so like you can have this strip mall or whatever with all the usual stores in it, and everybody's supposed, like, kind of supposed to be the same. But then they're always like, because we're human, there's always like oddballs and freaks everywhere, and and it's the same with the suburbs. There's all that. There's always that one family in sort of like a court of homes that is like decorated <laughs> their home deeply differently on the inside, and it feels unnatural. Yeah, or the people that just like leave the inside of their house for like 30 years you know just like don't touch anything um the the daughter of the family allison is kind of an introvert and an artist and is it hard when you're dealing with dynamics and shit going on in people's lives and spaceships is it hard to write (laughs) for for an introvert is it hard to write an introvert is it hard to yeah like yeah no, because I think, like, you know, I have plenty of that in myself. You know, all of those characters, there's some element of them that's part of me. You know, like, they're, and I feel like I am a person that sort of bounces back and forth between extrovert and introvert. So I, I, I feel like I can really, like, I know that feeling. I know that feeling of, like, the way that she is, where she just wants to be in her room and draw for hours. She doesn't really want to interact with the rest of the family that much. It's... <laughs> The, the dynamic of being the lowest drama person in a family yeah, is always... Yeah, the lowest drama. <laughs> it's hard, and it's something I'm sure a lot of the bookish people in this room can identify with. <laughs> Don't be so sure. I see a lot, <laughs> see a lot of wild cards in this audience. <laughs> okay, the mom, when, when you introduce us to this family, they're at a barbecue in a park in town, and the mom manages to, like, get... Ernest back from one of his like deep, deep environmentalist moments with this magnificent moment of hippie bullshit. <laughs> and then and then for and then when you when she comes back, she's just being a mom. She's just being a lawyer. She's just being yeah. this practical person who gets shit done. But you introduce her with this beautiful moment. And I just like talk me through that process. Yeah, I mean I think, you know. As you read the book, you see that Cynthia, the mother, is majorly the glue. You know, she's the peacekeeper, she's the organizer, and she's uber efficient in this way that isn't just about being pragmatic. In her mind, she's like, well, the most pragmatic thing actually to do is to appeal to his kind of peace sensibilities, you know? And I also think I wanted to reference that because I do think that's a major component of like that generation of like Midwest suburban people is that they all had like their time at an (laughs) an ashram like in the 60s, you know what I mean? Like it's part of them it's like in their minds and so they'll still sort of like call that out like that's an emergency play where it's like remember that we're hippies it, it was just it was such a beautiful thing to have be a hundred percent of what you know about her before you would add all of this other information so that you could never forget like that aspect of her being mm. it was beautiful he just need to read the book is what I'm saying <laughs> alright final question are all books about the suburbs just flirting with infidelity? Is it always <laughs> just a drive to infidelity? Well, you know, the suburbs is the land of married people, right? Yeah. Like a lot of married people go to the suburbs. And what's one of the conflicts of marriage, potentially? Infidelity. So I felt like, um, yeah, you know, that's a major, I think that's a, a through line. I mean, I recently had a conversation with one of my other brothers who lives in a suburb of Atlanta. And it was him and his wife talking, and they were just telling me about all the people in the subdivision. It's just like a regular, I mean, there, there's just nothing to say about the subdivision, except that everybody's cheating. <laughs> 
like they just went through everyone and it was like well so and so and Bob went out with this girl at work you know like there's just all these stories about people cheating yeah it's trouble <laughs> don't move to the suburbs if you want to have a healthy marriage it's something to look forward to why can't that be healthy alright Margaret Wampler will you read some of Neon Green for us I will thanks guys um I'm going to read a couple couple scenes, and then um, we can have some, some Q&A. Uh, let me put this away. Okay. Um, <laughs> what would you guys do if I just opened this and, like, drank it? Like, just the whole thing before I started reading. I mean, you'd, you'd roll with it, yeah. Um <laughs> Okay, so this is very early in the book where you see the spaceship coming down. The spaceship descends towards the home of the nuclear family, living in one of the psychic detritus clusters of the universe, otherwise known as the suburb. The utopian landscape is precise and ordered, a video game grid of school, park, church, houses, school, park, church, houses, school, park, church, houses, that gets more focused as the spaceship gets closer. The flying object cuts through layers of atmosphere, as delicate as filigree, made up of natural molecular ephemera and semi-noxious particles of clingy waste. The hairspray and the weed killer and the evaporated windshield wash and the fumes from a polyurethane glue used for a children's toy that is not recommended for below age eight. The top layers of the atmosphere, the mesosphere, the thermosphere, the exosphere, is made up of garbage and noise, signals from appliances cross-hatching into a graphic density, slivers of metal from aircraft flying on the slipstream, burning lava rock and auroras that vibrate and hum. Closer to Earth, the troposphere is ransacked and violated by the phenomenon known as weather. Clouds fattening with water that condenses, bursts and clatters down to the ground. The spaceship lowers through it all, leaving behind the moon, a pink scrape in the sky, to settle in the backyard of the Allen family. When the spaceship landed in the backyard at exactly 8.57 p.m. on August 18th, seven days after the first day of school, Cynthia was the first of the family to see it through the kitchen's picture window. A flying saucer made of silver sheets of bolted metal hovered over the trimmed grass, emitting a low humming noise that pained her teeth like pressing sugar into a cheap metal filling. At just about 25 feet across, the spaceship fits snugly between the house and the weeping willow tree in the backyard. Five de delicate tentacles shot out of the belly of the spacecraft and pierced the ground, one of them cleave cleaving through the fruit of Ernest's heirloom tomato plant. What? she shrieked, somewhere between delight, disbelief, and dread. The saucer rooted further into the grass, vrooming its engine. On top of the metal portion of the spaceship, separated by a band of lights, a dark glass top. Twirling lights hysterically crawled around the yard, hot white lights that could shrink pupils into black dots. Cynthia's hands dripped with the hot, soapy dishwasher she'd abandoned to come to the window. Ernest? Come here, she screamed, planted to her spot. Ernest, where are you? The water, now cool, ran into her elbows as she plugged her ears. 
The humming reached a semi-excruciating pitch, vibrating her sternum and surging up through her feet. Oh my God, oh my God, she moaned, but she could only hear the sound of her voice muffled inside of her head. She remembered then that Ernest was at an Earth Day meeting and wouldn't be home until late. Her relief that he'd snagged a job he enjoyed, finally, outweighed her admittedly unreasonable irritation that she'd have to parent this disaster alone. What if they were scared, the kids? Wasn't she scared? What, what was that feeling? Was that why her muscles twitched as if she were about to leap into a dark shaft? Unable to stop watching, she waited for the kids to come down. Some strange knowledge swept in, tidal and moonlit. The spaceship, she thought, was meant to be here, but she couldn't tell if it was bringing release or terror. I'm going to jump ahead to another scene. Um, this is with Ernest and the two kids, Gabe and Allison. And the spaceship has been there for a while. They've gotten used to it, but it's still really irking Ernest. <laughs> Gazing out the kitchen window at the ship his lips hovering over a steaming cup of exceptionally delicious morning coffee, the one from Ghana that he'd slipped into, into Demeter Foods to buy. Ernest watched the panel on the spaceship's underside slide open. He could hear it through the back screen door. The chunky sound of the panel sliding to the side reminded him of a cheap VCR ejecting a tape. Then a torrent of bright green liquid splattered onto the patch of dying grass. The panel closed with the slow purpose of an elevator, almost as if to allow for one last expulsion, as if the machine decided it must. What the hell was that? Ernest asked no one in particular. Allison looked up from her notebook where she was drawing the spaceship camped in the backyard, just in time to witness the dumping. Oh, I've seen that happen before. When? I don't know, a few days ago? And you didn't say anything? It didn't seem important. What could be more important than green sludge dumping on our lawn? <laughs> it's waste from the ship, Dad, Gabe said. It's just what it does. <laughs> oh, this is just what it does? How often is this supposed to happen? Gabe rushed in to speak, but realized he didn't know the answer. See, this is exactly what I was afraid of when you got this dumb thing to land at our house. What kind of waste anyway? These aliens haven't figured out a better way? When no one replied, Cynthia was out or she might have tried to calm him. Ernest stood up with intention. We're going to start keeping a log. Everything the ship does will record it. Even if it does nothing in particular, we will write down stationary. If it pukes up green liquid on the lawn, we'll write dumping noxious green liquid on the lawn. We'll make it a daily log. We'll keep track of its every movement. Logging was a ritual intrinsic to Allen family life. Ernest frequently used it to teach his children the importance of conservation. For several weeks last year, when he determined that Allison's showers were exorbitantly long and probably draining Lake Michigan, he made the kids keep track of their water usage. Cynthia tried to dissuade him. Ernest, don't you think they may need some sort of private time in there? But he didn't see what kind of private time required more than 15 minutes of hot water pressurized at 40 pounds per inch. Of course, the monitoring was handily manipulated by anyone in the house with a different agenda. Allison and Gabe fabricated inordinately long shower times for the other. An hour and 40 minutes. Five days. And the wrinkled notebook Ernest nailed to the bathroom wall. So many pranks were executed via the notebook that it was eventually abandoned. 
I don't want to keep a log, Allison said. It's just a thing back there now, like the weeping willow tree or the garage. Although, it's more fun to draw because it's so weird. We have to keep track of what it's doing so I can report it to the New World people. The New World people don't want to talk to you, Dad. They're busy. I'm having your mom, the attorney, call next time. That pamphlet didn't say anything about dumping waste on the lawn. Might be time to get litigious. Gabe regarded his sister with scornful curiosity. Allison, do you not even care about the spaceship in the backyard? That might even be worse than hating it. I care, but it just gives me the creeps sometimes. The creeps about what? That someone's watching us in there? Really? You're still worrying about that? There's no evidence for that. Well, there's no evidence against it either. I don't know. One minute it wasn't here, and then the next it is, and now everything's totally different. Like, what would be happening right now if it wasn't here? I want to go back to that. Gabe didn't agree aloud, but he admitted to himself that she had a point. The spaceship on some level always occupied his mind, never totally forgotten about, its image flashing when he wandered the hallways at school or rode his bike. He'd brought some of his classmates over, including kids he'd barely spoken to before, to gawk at it and ask questions like, what if the aliens are having sex in there right now? (laughs) The attention thrilled and exhausted him. The teachers were curious, too. Desperate to capitalize on the excitement, his English teacher turned it into an assignment for the class. I want you guys to write a paper about how the main characters of 1984, Winston and Julia, would react to a spaceship suddenly landing at its airstrip one, Mr. Levin said. Would it frighten them? Give them hope? What would be their reaction? Carrie, a pretty girl in the front row, raised her hand. Does this spaceship look exactly like the one at Gabe's house, she said, looking at Gabe and smiling. In the kitchen's junk drawer, beneath a detritus of pens, tape measures, paper clips, and solar calculators, Ernest found an old notebook. He flipped to a fresh page, speaking out loud as he wrote, 11.40 a.m., September 12th. Ship pukes out green liquid, approximately 10 gallons onto the lawn. He delivered the notebook to Gabe. I want you to be the primary keeper of the log. Ernest did not bother explaining his rationale, and Gabe didn't press. No problem. Daily posts. You can be the one to keep track of how it trashes our lawn and reduces your hearing every night. How that's, how's that tinnitus, by the way? It's nothing, Gabe said, before adding in a goofy rapper voice, I'm going to murder this notebook like it was the SATs. <laughs> Allison laughed. Yeah, dog. You too, Allison, Ernest said. I have a feeling you might be a less biased witness than Dr. Dre over here. Write down all the creepy things he won't write down. Are you and Mom going to contribute too? Of course. Ernest walked to the window. Traces of the neon green sludge were still visible, but most of it seemed to have already sunk in, working its way through the dirt and the tiny roots that carried nutrients into the central part of the grass. He wondered what would kill the grass first, the sludge or the oncoming winter. Thanks. I believe we have some time if you guys have questions for Margaret. What are your questions? <laughs> Oliver. Um, I recall this is your first novel, right? You might talk yeah. a little bit about your, your writing process in particular. I think I have two questions. One is, um, did you go through a lot of revisions from the ideas you had in the beginning versus how it ended up? And second, did you write this in little business? Did you create a process yourself? You wrote in little installments, you bounced in the cave and sequestered yourself there for a month? 
Um, well, you know, it was done a few different ways. I mean, the main way that I wrote this book was around a full-time writing job I had at the time at LA Times. And um, when I wasn't there, I was waking up early in the morning to write this, or I was meeting Miss Jade Chang right here. Um, <laughs> Clap. Clap. She's my writing partner, and she has a novel coming out later this year, too. Um, and so we would meet, you know, on Wednesday night at 6 o'clock or whatever and, and write for four or five hours and, you know, sometimes break down and go to a bar at the end of it. <laughs> whatever we needed to do to get the work done. Um, so that was kind of just on a nuts and bolts level, like how I did it. But then as far as, like, did it change a lot? You know, it's it's an interesting question because yes and no. Like, in some ways, you know, the, the, the image I first described that I thought of is totally intact, you know, of like a family and the spaceship lands and they all have these different reactions to it. But I really had to go through a process of figuring out who they all were and why they were reacting the way that they were reacting and 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 what else could come into the plot that would like kind of thicken and develop that whole spaceship landing idea. Follow-up question for both you and Jade. Do you adhere to the old maxim, write drunk, edit sober? <laughs> I mean, in principle, yeah, I think it's a good idea. Like, I mean, I do think when you're writing, before you get your editor brain in there, you just have to be loose and free and, like, let it all hang out. Do whatever you want. I agree. Other questions? <laughs> Ask a question. You came here? You, sir. <laughs> Can you tell us something about the aliens? That's not a spoiler. Hmm. Well... They live in a spaceship. <laughs> They're from Jupiter. Um, they have been seen by certain people that pay enough money to see them. Um, and the, when it lands, you, the, the Allens are, they get this pamphlet that comes with the spaceship that like explains what their whole deal is. Let's, yeah, you need a pamphlet to explain these things. I didn't ask good questions. Let's uh, explain to everyone like when first contact was and how the new world sort of like system works. Yeah, well, you, you hear in the book that basically this whole program started like 10 years prior and that, um, you know, at first it was really alarming for people. Um, spaceships landing. It was horrifying. Um, but then it's been sort of already commodified by the American capitalist system. And they're only coming to America. That's the only place where they are. And that we hear that that's because America sort of like, like got in there and sort of grabbed the reins on getting the aliens to come to the United States. Um, so The consensus that Reagan did a great job with the aliens yeah, is like yeah. one of the beautiful moments from the book. <laughs> right. One of the characters is like, go Reagan. Like, wait to set that up. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so you did, you know, one of the things that, that Gabe and, and his dad argue about early on is Gabe is like, oh, they're going to come out of that ship, you know, for sure. Um, and he's excited about that. And Ernest is like, no, they're not. The only time we've ever heard about that is in tabloids. That's the only place where we get, we've heard that that's happened. So it's kind of a mystery, like, whether they're going to come out. More questions? Go for it. Um, for some reason, I, the movie Coneheads just popped into my head, you know, in terms of aliens and suburban environments. Were there any films at all that sort of informed you in this book? Yeah, I mean, E.T., all those early Spielberg movies, like, really... Um, 
because I like the fact that ET is this again is this like really warm community that we all know and like can basically feel at home in that community but then this kind of insane things happens of this alien coming um, and uh, yeah I would say that was a big touchdown and partially just because of, of that was one of the first movies I ever saw as a child like in the theaters so it really um, stayed with me I was really scared to eat Reese's Pieces for a while um, I was like convinced that, that like aliens were real like I mean it really it had a profound impact on have, me have you seen Close Encounters of the Third Kind I have although there's something about Close Encounters that doesn't like like strike the core as much for me and I don't really know why I feel like I need to watch it again but also we were children when we saw it probably so it did not and you're like I want aliens but it's this more distant and abstract kind of relationship and communication yeah which I really liked about it I mean it's similar to your book yeah 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 and there's a new series now that's uh, just starting on Netflix that has Winona Ryder in it called Stranger Things and I, I don't know if anybody's seen it yet but that watching that there's a lot of kinship mm. with that series and, and what goes on in Neon Green Go for it. Uh, a little bit jumping off of that question, but um, okay, so you've got environmental stuff, you've got UFOs and aliens. How much like real research did you do? Not cinema research, but like did you explore uh, uh, UFO sightings, or did you, you know, what was the real stuff that I did do some research in terms of reading accounts of people seeing UFOs, particularly in the Midwest. Um, I really wanted that kind of idea. Um, there's this kind of trademark UFO sighting that happens to like the lone man in a truck on a highway going home from work and he sees something and he's like, well, I don't know what that is, you know, and like he, you know, takes a really grainy picture of it and, and calls the police and, you know, five other people in the township have also seen it, but it's always like a solo person by themselves. And, you know, there, there, there was something about the kind of like texture of that experience that I love, um, that it is kind of isolated and strange. Uh, it never gets confirmed. Um, um, and then as far as other kinds of research, yeah, I mean, there was, like, research in terms of, like, later on in the book when Ernest is really getting paranoid, he starts to do all this testing of, like, what that sludge is that it's dumping out. And so I had to do research of, like, you know, what, where would you go to get something like that tested? What would they be looking at? What would be the chemicals that could come up that would be problematic or not? Um, so certain things about chemicals, like, I would find myself reading and being like, I don't, I don't totally understand this, but I think I understand enough that I can do, I can put this in the book. Have to look at 1994 again? Oh yeah, for sure. Yes. I mean, and there was certain, I mean, to the credit of the fact checker on this book, there was a couple of things that she was like, actually, that came out in 1997. <laughs> and I had to be like, oh man. You know, like there's this a scene early on where the kids are like talking about bands and I have one of them making fun of Creed. And she was like, Creed didn't get big until 98. And I was like, well, great. But... <laughs> There's some good catches like that, yeah. I go live. That was the band that I plugged in instead. <laughs> and they're bad too. <laughs> yeah. Um, whew, you know, it was it was a real. I was a, it's an interesting experience because I feel like I got lucky in the agent part of it where the the first agent I queried she wanted to work with me but that was like a really lucky stroke there and then we worked together on the book um, for a few months just the two of us back and forth fixing some things oh yeah it was like done it was done yeah um, and um, 
so we worked back and forth on getting it into better shape and then we started uh, you know she started selling it or trying to sell it and there was a lot of like painful close calls and a lot of editors who were like we really love this and then they'd kind of run it up the flagpole and nothing would happen and then probably I don't know I guess like four months or so like uh, Jay Ryan who couldn't be here tonight sadly but who was a major guardian angel for this book basically gave it to the people at Unnamed and said I think you guys are really going to love this and um, and they did, and and there you go. Yeah. Follow-up question. Margaret, why go for the dead medium of print? Why not a nice web series? <laughs> oh, God. I don't know. I mean, I ask myself that kind of thing all the time, where I'm just like, why don't I do something that like, makes some real casual, you know? But I, you just, I, I love books. I just do. I, I love... <laughs> Good pandering. <laughs> Hey, Sean. Uh, do you think you would jump into another revisionist history project like this again, where you step back, you know, just a couple of decades and start excavating, or, or did you feel like you kind of scratched that itch and maybe were ready to move on? Just, I'm just curious, like, like maybe just unburdened a lot in the process of doing this, and like, are you going to try a different decade or a different area of time, or maybe present time? Yeah, um, you know, it's funny because (laughs) I barely thought of this book as any kind of history or alternative history or or the things that some people have called it and like reviews and and blurbs and things like that. Like to me, it was just like, I'm just setting it in the 90s, but it's a, a, you know, it's kind of a cracked open 90s. It's a whacked out 90s. Um, And my main impetus to set it there was just because I wanted to be in a pre-internet time and I wanted it to be. I don't know. I wanted it to have this warmth and nostalgia, um, but I don't. I, I don't know. It's hard to say. Like if I'll ever do something like that again. I mean, the the book that I'm like working with now is is contemporary. Like I don't have that itch of like, oh no, I'm going to go back into the '70s or something like that. Um, but you know, down the line, I don't know. The book has gotten very good reviews. You're somebody who reviews books on a regular basis. Is Do you feel more vulnerable to critical reviews when you know you can't just be like, oh, fuck critics, because you are one? <laughs> well, it's funny, because I feel like I still can be like, fuck critics. <laughs> I mean, I have these moments of, I mean, I, I think... I, I think every critic knows that sometimes you're wrong and sometimes and, and often always you go into a book with your own ideas and your own biases and your own kind of um, blind spots and you know so I guess like so far I feel happy you know that people are responding to it but um, I do think you know people will say things I mean like I put up this lit reactor review today and, and the critic called it cynical and I was like I don't think it's cynical but but you know at the same time I'm like whatever you know that's like that's her take I'm, I'm cool with it respect. Yeah. Never forget the original <laughs> New York Times review of the comeback can't stop talking about how much better Entourage is. So, <laughs> shit happens. Two more questions. Go for it. Um, Hi, Kaishni. Hi, Margaret. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your uh, outlining process. Like, did you write your way through the book? Did you outline uh, it in, in advance? Did you work out the character? Like, what was your system? Yeah, um, my system's kind of chaos. I mean, I 
I get a really strong image idea and I sort of write to that image, you know, and sort of try to attack it from all these different angles. And I mean, I definitely, when I wrote the first draft, I tried to push all the way through to the end. And I did, I did know vaguely what the end was going to be. I didn't know everything about it, but I knew the feeling I wanted. Um, So it's always sort of like feelings and ideas and images that I'm writing towards. And then I think in a later draft period, I kind of realized, oh, this is like really kind of muddy and I have to make it um, more precise and so I I start um, doing more outlining, doing more kind of like okay if the plot's going here what do I have to have come in but in the beginning I I just try not to control it that much because I find I, I get bored if I know too much too soon Do we have a last question? Somebody Do it Yes Zach it's a good question. Um, I have not, but I feel like they n- they now know that I'm like you know <laughs> I did a little signal boost in the sky like yo come on like I'm interested you know <laughs> no probes like I don't want anything like that but <laughs> probes can be fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah no I never have. We'll see if it happens. Would you tell us? If- <laughs> <laughs> I might not even be. I might be a replicant. Who knows what's happened? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Margaret Wapler's replicants. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to just say something real quick. Uh, you guys, thank you so much for coming out to this reading tonight and for all the support of so many different people in this room. Like when I look around, I just see tons of people who helped me talk through ideas in this book, who read drafts of this book, who um, just listened to me be upset about it because I wasn't getting it done. Um, and then everyone too who's just coming to this book and hearing about it, I'm really happy to see you here. And let me just say too that Skylight is an amazing bookstore. And thank you to them for having us here and that you guys should buy things here. Support your local indie bookstore and buy something. Um, Okay, thank you. And buy Neon Green tonight so that Margaret Wappler can sign it for you because she's signing books, everybody. Yes. Thanks so much for coming out. Buy it. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. And we hope to see you soon.